I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Sam, congratulations. You've uh, you finished your exams. You're back in the real world. Thank you very much. Um, how's it feel? I feel like I have a low-level flu coming on uh, right now. I'm sorry. All right, I'll try to make this quick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one thing was, like, have you been following the Jewish resistance stuff? No, I was actually going to ask you. I mean, I've seen it, but I don't actually know who is behind it and what is being resisted, per se. So I actually don't know who started this hashtag, mm-hmm. but following Trump's election, groups like If Not Now and Jewish Voice for Peace, they've pivoted quite a, a bit to focus on stuff going on in the United States instead of going on in Palestine, mm-hmm. with a focus on the incoming Trump administration. And I think it was If Not Now that used the Jewish resistance hashtag when they were protesting against the nomination of Steve Bannon. Oh, okay. Just to pivot a little bit, Lots of pivoting tonight. I don't know if you saw a pretty wild tweet from one David Duke, the Ku Klux Klan wizard or whatever they call themselves. Wait, do you follow David Duke on Twitter? No, but it it ended up getting retweeted by a bunch of people. What was the tweet? So ultimately, there was this sensationalist article written by The Atlantic, which was terrible. But the headline was, Are Jews White? Did you uh, see that? Yeah, as part of the onslaught of horrible articles about white Jews and whiteness that came out after the Trump election. Yeah. I feel like we're actually going to get to this in great detail over the course of this episode. But this particular wingding quoted the tweet from The Atlantic that had the headline like, Are Jews White? And then just wrote in all caps, NO! exclamation mark. Okay, wait a minute. Are we retweeting David Duke by doing this right now, though? Well, we're not retweeting because we're talking on well, an well, audio I, podcast. I know, but like in a way. Yeah, a little bit. We're giving him a little bit more light than he needs. Huh. I don't know. At the same time, I don't really have any meaningful defense of this. I thought it was just very comical. The way this kind of opinion can like manifest itself on Twitter in this particular way. I do. I, it's I, more I, the mode than the sentiment, you know? Yeah, I, I have to admit that I, I have found the whole process of watching white supremacists have their own debate about the relationship between white Jews and whiteness mm-hmm. and how much it actually parallels the debates that go on in liberal Jewish spaces. Hot takes Zimmerman over here. It was really weird to see. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like the general consensus from these folks, and I don't really spend, thankfully, that much time engaging with Nazi Twitter, but I mean, most of them are very engaged in drawing a distinction between white folks and white Jews. Definitely, definitely. Okay, well, enough about Twitter, at least for today. We basically decided after many conversations, and I guess maybe we should just go into them slightly before I give this preface, or maybe I should just keep talking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I hope you're holding on to the edges of your seat. But yeah, the question of whiteness, the question of anti-Semitism, the question of European-descended white Jews' relationship to structural power in North America is one that keeps coming up. And it's obviously impossible and difficult to have in one conversation, but we've been trying to kind of synthesize some ideas together over the course of the last year, year and a half. Yeah, and a lot of people since we started the show have been asking and urging us to have an episode that talks in an explicit way about the relationship of white Jews to whiteness and white supremacy. So far, our perspective on this is that we thought it would be more useful to actually have conversations about this be present over multiple episodes. If you listen to different conversations we've had, I think our viewpoints and attitudes and thoughts about this have come out in a lot of different conversations But since the election of Donald Trump, the mainstream media and the Jewish media have sort of gone into overdrive on this topic in a direction that 
seemed pretty bad from our perspective. So we thought it was time to finally throw in the towel and have this sort of episode. And actually, one of the things that spurred on this was a recent article in Jew School. It was written by an academic in Chicago, I believe. His name is Benjamin Balthazar, and it was a critical engagement with anti-Semitism. It was pretty amazing because there's so many of these articles written all of the time about anti-Semitism. And most of the time, I feel like they aren't great. And we were both just pretty blown away by how on point and solid it was. Yeah, and on, on this episode, we actually have two separate interviews. We also got in touch with Karen Brodkin, who uh, wrote the book back in the 90s, How Jews Became White Folks and What That Says About Race in America. She recently wrote an article in The Forward, sort of riffing off of a lot of white Jewish anxiety about what's to come with the new Trump administration. And I think that one of the things that we've come up against so much in talking about anti-Semitism and thinking about anti-Semitism is the ways in which the right in the Jewish community really has a hold over the definition of this idea. Yeah, and, and we talk about this uh, in, in the interviews, but we're hoping that our conversations on this episode and, and our conversations on a lot of other ones too can be a part of breaking the monopoly that the right has had on defining and understanding anti-Semitism. So this is your episode of Trafe for the six of Tevas. Uh, my name is Karen Brodkin. Uh, I'm an academic, an anthropologist, a uh, gender studies scholar. I taught at many schools, and for the last 21, 22 years of my career, I was at UCLA. Uh, I've written about race, uh, gender issues, and class issues. I'm an old an old Marxist, but uh, moving moving into much more current kinds of politics. Keep what's good, get rid of what ain't. So we were hoping to start with the infamous book, and I feel like you've probably heard this many times, but in the circles that me and David occupy, people talk about this book and people share this book, and it, it, it has played a really important role for a lot of people's formation and thinking about Jewish identity and whiteness. And to start off, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the political context within which the book emerged, where the idea to write it came from. Well, Morris Shappas, who used to edit Jewish Currents, which was a progressive Jewish magazine out of New York, asked me, I think in the early, early 90s, to respond to a piece by Michael Levin, who was at, I think, City College at the time. Uh, and he had written a piece called Why Black Anti-Semitism? And his argument was fairly simple, but it was a pretty common one at the time in Jewish circles. And that is that black folks envied Jews' success. Jews were successful and they weren't. Uh, it was, I thought, a pretty dumb piece of racism. <laughs> and I came up with the basic, the basic premise of how Jews became white folks. I, it drew on my own experience. 
my parents knew they weren't quite white. They were Jewish, and that didn't mean white. And uh, I thought of myself as white as the driven snow. And uh, my kids wonder about Jewish. And I started thinking about things that I knew from my childhood and just wrote a very short essay. Next thing that happened was uh, a couple of sessions at the anthropology meetings on uh, African-Americans, Jews, racism. And this was while I I think Richard Hernstein was stirring up the more current why blacks are no good uh, biologically kind of argument. And so there was a symposium, and I figured, well, it's one thing to talk about what you remember. It's another thing to do some research. So I started doing some research, uh, and I discovered, lo and behold, one of my few hypotheses was actually right, <laughs> which was delightful. That's its history. And what was the response? Like, uh, that, the response was terrific, and it was picked up. I think the New York Times did a review of it and prominently mentioned my article so it it had a lot of a lot of play, you know. The, I think it was published in 1998, and that was really before the rise of social media. So, in a in a curious way, that chapter especially, uh, and the book have had a life. You know, it's sort of the equivalent of going viral for the academic set. It's been anthologized in almost every ethnic studies diversity reader that I know I've, I've lost count. So it's done good work. I'm pleased with it. Something that I've wondered a lot about since reading the book is if you think you would have written it any differently today. I, like a frequent critique that I've heard, and I think I agree with about the way that part of the book is written, is that it uses the term Jews when it's really just referencing light-skinned Ashkenazi Jews, yeah, and, Ashkenazi types, yeah, yeah. No, I would write it. I would write it differently. Um, I, I went back and looked at it and said, "God, didn't I have a disclaimer in the beginning saying, hey, 'Hey, I'm writing what I know, and uh, it really does apply to one slice of Jews'?" And I can't find it, so I didn't. And I would certainly change that. I mean, is there any anything else in the work that you think you would, if you're, for example, like if you're putting out like a new edition today, do you think that you would uh, oh my change? God. <laughs> <laughs> we're actually we're um, actually working for the university press right now. <laughs> I ain't writing no more books. I mean, you have twenty or fifteen years removed from the book coming out, and I'm. It's been probably several more since that article came out. Why do you feel? I mean, besides the tremendous scholarship. <laughs> Why, why do you feel like it was so well-received? Do you feel like in that period, in the 90s, that the Jewish community or, or broader American society was looking to answer that question to a certain extent? Um, well, it's had diverse receptions for anti-racist groups and progressive Jews. Uh, it's very, very welcome. I was invited to a lot of temples to speak, and I think there was real resistance on the part of many people in the audience, and there was a, a reluctance that I don't understand fully, but I do partially, to sort of being among the privileged. And it's something that I think I would love to have a conversation about, about the tension there. I, I don't quite get it, but it's real. Uh, like me and Sam have been talking a lot about James Baldwin's essay, Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white, from back in the 60s. Yeah. And God, yes. 
And so it seems like a lot of what he was talking about in that essay is still on display today in Jewish communities. You know, like outside of Jewish communities, white Jews are understood primarily based on their relationship to structural power, like as white people. But inside of most Jewish communities, there's this idea that white Jews are still understood as the other. They're distinct from whiteness. And so they don't actually have to confront the realities of privilege that they have in America as white Jews. It's no different from other what other whites do. Mm. In other words, I don't have any privilege to refuse to acknowledge structural privilege mm. and to focus, if anything, you know, there's a lot of bigots out there. They might come after us. And that, of course, seems to have a little more reality today than it did when I wrote it. But I do think it is a refusal to recognize structural privilege then you rely on history. We once were. Mm. It could happen again. And yes, it could. It's not now. I guess I also wanted to, because yeah. I mean, one of the central uh, themes underpinning your book is the, the way in which you draw kind of race and class together. Um, mm-hmm. That you talk about the ascension to whiteness is very much paralleled by the desire to enter and then the, the acceptance of white European-descended Jews into the middle class, how do you feel that analysis holds today? In cities, it probably still holds. Uh, What it's like in rural areas is is less clear. Mm. With the falling of structural barriers, Jews were able to transform from a predominantly working-class set of populations to a predominantly middle-class set of populations. But the decades in which this took place were the epitome of American prosperity. For most of American history, we've had a class system with a few very rich and a lot of very poor and a fairly small middle. The post-World War II period was an exception. We've taken it in popular imagination to be the norm, but it's not the case. Mm. So when Jews rose, it wasn't because, as some of the conservative folks like Glazer and Moynihan said, we're so fabulous. Mm. We've got a great family structure. We take care of each other. Well, everybody else rose, whether or not they had the same family structure, so long as they were white and didn't have structural racism keeping them down. I mean... In my mind, there are two stories about Jews, a story that progressive Jews pull out. Hey, we were once workers, you know, we're with the working class, we're against racism, we were once victims of anti-Semitism. The other one was a post-war conservative story about, gee, how come Jews did so wonderfully after being oppressed Mm -hmm. and black folks didn't? Well, something wrong with black family structure was the answer. And it's had several iterations over the decades of that particular story. I mean, something that I think is tied up in that mindset is not differentiating between the existence of structural racism and interpersonal or social bigotry. And in your recent, you wrote a recent article in The Forward where you sort of described a childhood experience to try to help clarify that difference. And I was wondering if you can just talk a bit about that. Um, I was in Montana for a summer uh, at a high school and was playing catch with a bunch of friends. 
And one of the guys jumped in front of me and, you know, snagged the ball that had been thrown to me. And he said, I jute you. It wasn't hostile. It was, you know, friendly. Ha ha, I gotcha. <laughs> and I said, what'd you say? And he said, I jute you. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, I took something from you that was rightfully yours. <laughs> he was flabbergasted. And I said, have you ever met a Jew? And he said, no. I said, you're looking at one. And he said, really? You don't have any horns. I said, Jews don't have horns. Go look at my head. Okay, so that that's bigotry. I was very aware, I wouldn't have called it privilege then, I was very aware that that had to be a minority opinion because everybody I knew in cities thought of Jews as just another kind of white New Yorkers. I did not see as a kid the difference between structural privilege and lack of bigotry. I, I, didn't, I didn't separate the two conceptually. I do now, and I did in the book. Now, when you put bigotry in the White House, you can no longer separate it so easily from structural racism. So uh, the conceptual distinction is important, and knowing how um, bigotry and structure interact is also important. So I, I don't know if, you, if you've been following it, but there has been this huge amount of space, both within sort of like the niche Jewish community media, but also mainstream media, uh, somewhere between confusion and panic about what Trump and the White House and the Trump administration means for white Jews' relationship to whiteness. And, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering what your take is on how much space that's taking up in the discourse, considering the potential impact that white Jews stand to receive compared to other groups? Um, We're probably low on the totem pole of being kicked in the teeth, which is not to say that anti-Semitism is not going to happen. What I'm seeing, what I wrote in in the foreword that really disturbs me, the use of the swastika is not an accident. And the swastika does constitute a transformation of separate bigotries into a notion of a master race. I mean, that's what it was all about. And if that's the case, we ain't in it. If we don't acknowledge that we have been living in a situation of relative racial privilege, then we're not going to be as clear on which side we ought to be when things get sticky. Mm. Something that I found in a lot of writing on Jews and whiteness, you know, white Ashkenazi Jews and whiteness specifically, is is Mm -hmm. the the presence of this tone sometimes that borders on aspirational. Like, uh, Like there's sort of this implicit premise sometimes that, you know, all groups are constantly vying to achieve whiteness, like there could be no other response to white supremacy or structural racism. And is this something that you've noticed in, in writing about it? Like, what do you make of that? that, that no, term? actually, you, you wrote that in your question, and I, I'm, I'm puzzled by it. I, I guess it's this aspirational thing. So tell me more about what you mean. I guess one thing that David just said about assimilation, I think maybe that's a, that's a, maybe a better way to think about this to a certain extent or talk about it. Okay. That yeah. in some ways, in order to gain acceptance into whiteness... 
European descended white Jews had to undertake a form of assimilation. Yes. And that this form of assimilation was a choice. Okay, I can understand it better with assimilation. Okay. And then I, then I, I think the question then becomes like, is resistance to assimilation an option? Was it an option back then? And instead of thinking of how do I become part of like white American society, the idea is like, could assimilation be resisted in some manner? Um, well, I think I think it is. It is culturally. It is in terms of interpersonal relationships. I think assimilation is it's it's attention. Do you forget your roots? I, I, I'm more interested in how people use their roots and the stories Jews tell themselves about what it means to be Jewish. Mm. I mean, there's where I can find real traction. How do I explain my success as a Jew or lack of it? That I can, that I can understand. And that's something that people really grapple with. One of the editorials I was reading in the op-eds I was reading in the foreword before I wrote mine was by a historian, and uh, whose name I forget. Uh, but it was a really interesting, interesting one. He's a medieval historian. He said, "Well, my goodness, there have always been court Jews uh, from Charlemagne on. Uh, emperors, conquerors always had a Jew, not only to bankroll, but to keep an eye on Jewish communities and to advise." So uh, I think there are certain kinds of assimilation that would allow Jews to play the role of court Jew still. Uh, that was his, his point, I think. And that's a kind of assimilation. Uh, I don't think it's all that common. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think most of the institutional Jewish community in the United States are sort of playing that role right now. I think that's informing a lot of the dissent you're seeing internally. You're talking about the Jew within the Jewish community. Yeah, like yeah. the Jewish federations or all these Zionist yep. organizations. Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. <laughs> um, but now we have... <laughs> I think I understand where you're coming from. But you can't talk about that without raising the elephant in the Jewish room, and that's Israel, Israel-Palestine. Yeah, it's a humongous elephant. Because, well, <laughs> because that's what's driving a lot of this. And... There is, I do believe, a real shift among younger Jews and among many of my generation as well, who do not support the state of Israel and its policies. You're talking to two of them, no doubt. Right. We are keeping a (laughs) terribly reactionary and racist Jewish state uh, well-armed. And I think it's bad for... Palestinians, I think it's bad for Jews, and I think it's bad for world peace, frankly. It is an issue that divides American Jews very, very sharply. If we ask about Jewish identities, um, assimilation and not, I, I think many Jews and Jewish organizations who think that, oh my gosh, this is the homeland and we really have to support it no matter what its policies are, are also more likely to believe that Jews are in, have been for a long time more likely to believe that Jews are in danger and need a Jewish homeland. Mm. So there's a, a kind of a perfect storm of what you call assimilationism, and I see as a sort of anxiety, you know, fairly widespread among Jews about what the state of Israel means to them. 
Could you talk a little bit about that anxiety and maybe like, I feel like your discussions about stories that we tell is, is really interesting. And I, what do you think are the stories behind this kind of anxiety? Well, I think the stories behind this anxiety are the Holocaust. And that's the story that the state of Israel tells. That is its story. It's a very powerful story that has to be grappled with. I think it's wrong. It justifies atrocious behavior, bigotry, structural racism in Israel. It's the worst kind of uh, invasive settler colony. So to try and end the show on a little bit of a more positive note. um, Oh, good. We have a segment that me and David do every time we put out the show, and it's called Shkoyach. And it's basically like a congratulations or a taking note of a person or a book or an event or an organization that we think did something or is significant. Um, we also have a negative one, but we'll try and stick in the positive for you. Let's do the positive, yeah. <laughs> is, there any, is there anyone or group or thing that you want to give to a shkoyach to? Yeah, I give a shout out to Jewish Voice for Peace. I think they are, I'm a member, I think they're doing a wonderful job of trying to organize boycott, divestment, and sanction, and to take on this issue of Jews and Israel in a very sophisticated, very humane way. I'm really proud to be a member of that group. And again, I feel like I'm just prolonging this conversation, but I I wanted to tell you that the book that you wrote was really meaningful to me at a certain point. Uh, I mean, it still is, but it, at, at a juncture where I was trying to figure a lot of things out, your book was uh, very helpful to me. Oh, thank you. That's so nice to know. <laughs> That's the nicest thing you can say to a writer. <laughs> well, Karen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. My pleasure. Be well. You too. Have a great night. This is Avi Grenadier, one-third of the Radio 613 Collective. Anyway, I'm calling here from my home in Montreal, and I want to tell you about a kiddish that went pretty trafy this past Shabbos. My dad was in town, and so we went to a Chabad for services. Afterwards, the rabbi is going on a rant. He starts going on about how there's no occupation, and I just blurted out, that's not true. (laughs) And I sort of stormed out of the Kiddush Hall back into the sanctuary where a couple yeshiva bukhers followed me. We we had a bit of a conversation about how Israel is not the David, but in fact the Goliath maybe. The hardening aspect for me, coming back to the table and actually having my father responding with understanding and compassion whereas we spent a decade ago in this cycle of vitriol about Israel-Palestine. That's it. Wherever you all are at, listeners, I wish you bon courage.
So after we talked with Karen, we, we both felt like we still had a lot of questions about how white Jews relate to whiteness differently in, in rural spaces than they do in large urban centers in the United States and Canada, the kind of spaces that the two of us are much more used to. And we, we read this excellent article by Benjamin Balthazar that was talking about this exactly, about how to understand the rural experience of white Jews in relationship to whiteness and why it's so different geographically. So, my name is Benjamin Balthazar. I'm an associate professor of multi-ethnic literature at Indiana University in South Bend. Uh, my recent book, uh, which came out of the University of Michigan Press in 2015, called Anti-Imperialist Modernism. And in general, my writing deals with issues of race, social movements, and uh, cultural identity. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. So we wanted to start off with that piece that you wrote a couple of weeks ago in Jew School called Lessons on mm-hmm. Anti-Semitism from Growing Up in Rural America. We were just both so tired of reading <laughs> not great analyses <laughs> of anti-Semitism, and we're both thrilled to come mm-hmm. across your piece. For people who haven't read it, could you give a general introduction to it? Yeah, sure. Actually, that's sort of why I wrote it, is that I was also tired of reading that analysis of anti-Semitism. And I actually have a great deal of sympathy for a lot of bad analyses of anti-Semitism, particularly on the left, and I I consider myself a committed socialist. Uh, I think there's a lot of discomfort around discussions around anti-Semitism on the left, precisely because it's been taken over by the pro-Israel lobby. And so I think for a lot of progressives uh, who do not recognize themselves in the right-wing Jewish nationalist project, the conversation around anti-Semitism has gotten very uncomfortable. And I also think, too, a lot of people haven't had my experience, which is, you know, they grow up in big cities, uh, they grow up in maybe central suburbs, and problems of of race and racism are far more structural and less uh, interpersonal. Generally speaking, of course, you still find interpersonal racism, but it's not the kind of hard edge that you see, uh, I would say, more frequently in rural America, you know, actual white nationalists and Ku Klux Klan members and things along those lines. One thing that I, I kind of want to talk about is just because your your piece seemed pretty unique in talking about the experience of growing up in rural areas mm-hmm. and, and what it means. Mm-hmm. What drives the difference between white Jews and whiteness, how it varies regionally within the United States? Like, what do you think is behind that's that? A, that's an excellent question and excellent information. Um, let me just first talk to you about my own experiences. And I, I think it was important for me to share some of those. I, I live in Chicago and I don't actually think an awful lot about that anymore uh, in my day-to-day life. Uh, so I grew up in a small town in rural California. It was a small, unincorporated town of about 10,000 and about 300 miles from any big city. And in that milieu, I wouldn't say that anti-Semitism was the most virulent or violent form of racism. Racism was the built architecture of my town. But anti-Semitism was certainly there. They would use anti-Semitic slurs on a constant basis. Uh, actually, the one I thought was really funny when people would say, if you stole something or were cheap, they'd ask people in a bagel with that, which I actually thought was sort of amusing the first time I heard it. Um, but then I was like, that's really messed up. Um, so uh, <laughs> to go back to your question, why is rural America different than, say, for instance, Chicago? Well, one thing, like I said, there are just very few Jews there. I was uh, the only Jew I knew most of the time. And I think the other thing, is, and this is one of the things that I often talk about with my own students, I think there's a kind of wrong way of thinking about racism. Racism is sort of this transcendent evil 
part of human nature, and I always argue that racism is institutional. Uh, if you see a persistent pattern of racism, or racial exclusion, or racial domination, or racial violence, generally speaking, it's going to be institutional. And uh, the main institutional site of racism uh, where I was growing up was right-wing evangelical Christianity, and to a lesser extent, white nationalist politics. It took me a long time to figure out, in fact, actually, I didn't really realize this until much later, but I think a large source of, of, of anti-Jewish racism or anti-Semitism in America comes from right-wing evangelicism. The distinction that you're making between the way that anti-Semitism would play out in a social or like interpersonal way and, and contrasting that with the way that it structurally existed in the churches... Mm-hmm. I mean, right. uh, we, we've talked about this before, but in so much of the writing right now, it seems like that distinction is so blurred. People don't seem to be able to mm-hmm. distinguish between the presence of anti-Semitism as a sentiment or an attitude with the existence right. of structural anti-Semitism. Can right. you talk a little bit more about the way that that differs regionally? Well, anti-Semitism, and I don't want to maybe jump the gun a little bit, but is very different from other forms of racism. And I think that's the other difficulty people have in writing about it. You know, most forms of racial domination that we experience in the United States are somehow essential to either the accumulation of capital or the foundation of the nation state. So for instance, the seizure of Native American land was foundational for the formation of the United States and Canada, the enslavement of African labor, the exclusion of the Chinese from the West Coast. These are all things that on some level were foundational to either state formation or the accumulation and reproduction of capital. And anti-Semitism is not necessarily foundational in the same sense. It's not explicitly necessary in the same way as, say, for instance, enslaving African labor and growing cotton, although it has a function, which I'm sure we'll get into. And so, therefore, it has a different institutional language, it has a different institutional feel, it has a different presence. You know, I wasn't pulled over by the cops because I was Jewish. I wasn't singled out by, you know, guidance counselors for prison because I was Jewish. Yet, there was this sort of institutional source of anti-Jewish expression that would sometimes result in violence or, or these sort of verbal aggression. And so I think sort of understanding, you know, both that there's this institutional structure to anti-Semitism in the U.S. that is located in, you know, right-wing Christianity, which is more often located in rural places, uh, and that also the institutional nature of it means that it's going to look different. I want to backtrack a little here because you mentioned sure. this idea of some kind of essential character of Jews or Jewishness uh, within like an evangelical right approach. And in your article, you also talk about how some critiques of anti-Semitism coming from the left also do this kind of essentializing of Jews as a people in this trans-historical nature. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, so I I talk a little bit about April Rosenblum's very influential pamphlet, The Past Never Went Anywhere. And that's a really important pamphlet. Uh, And I think she talks about the ways in which anti-Semitism doesn't look like other forms of racism. It doesn't necessarily have the same institutional logic. It can exist on the right and the left in all these various ways. But the problem with it is, as I think your question alludes to, is that it causes anti-Semitism as this trans-historical fact, as though it's always existed in the West in the exact same way, and uh, that it'll always exist in the West in the exact same way. And it doesn't ask, I think, the important question that I was trying to think about is, well, what is this institutional source? Uh, why has it been quiet, really, in America, at least since the 60s? And now it's suddenly reemerged kind of explosively into the surprise of everyone, including myself. And one of the things that's different is that right-wing Christianity plays a much larger part in American life than it did 
40 or 50 years ago. Of course, right-wing Christianity has always been here. It's foundational to America in a lot of ways. But its power within the Republican Party, coalescing around particular issues, have really grown, you know, as part of this kind of right-wing revolution. And I think the other thing also that's happened as well uh, is that we have this rise of Trump and kind of right-wing populism, which is really kind of a new phenomenon. At least we haven't seen that since the 1930s with Father Coughlin. We're seeing these kind of right-wing populists who have uh, their own anti-Semitism, which is sort of more the white nationalist variety, which understands Jews as being sort of outsiders, fifth calmers, communists, and of course tied to finance capital, which they have a particular critique of. And so this is actually kind of a return to sort of older protocols, the elders of Zion, anti-Semitism. And, you know, we saw this all over the Trump campaign with the various commercials, Steve Bannon, et cetera. And so that would be my critique, basically, of, of, of her pamphlet, is that, is that I think she describes anti-Semitism very well, but uh, she doesn't actually locate it within political projects. We mentioned this in the intro, but there's been a, mm-hmm. there's been a handful, maybe handful is an understatement. There, the amount of articles diagnosing anti-Semitism and talking about the whiteness of certain Jews while erasing many Jews who aren't white, it feels like there's a desire to situate Jews in this poorly formed identity marker as victims of white supremacy, whereas your text is trying to situate Jewish participation in white supremacy or like different kinds of Jewish participation in white supremacy and the kind of structural involvement that we need to reckon with. Yeah, that's that's the, the tricky part. <laughs> because, right, like most Jews in America, the, the numbers are a little unclear. I think something like 85% of U.S. Jews are Ashkenazi. Most Ashkenazi Jews are white, although, of course, many African-American Jews are also Ashkenazi. Uh, also, the racial classifications of Mizrahi Jews and Sephardic Jews mm. in the U.S. are also a little unclear, too. In America, the actually, in the census, would be white, whereas in Israel, they would be considered Jews of color, and so it's also tricky. But most Jews in America, the, the vast majority of Jews in America, are white people. Uh, and they experience, not only experience all kinds of white privilege or, or the lack of, of racial oppression, uh, they also participate in it, and, and oftentimes quite passively. You know, James Baldwin has this really kind of heartbreaking and moving essay called Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. And while I have some issues with the essay in some ways, um, we can talk about those. Uh, you know, I talked about the fact that, you know, um, white flight is real. You know, Jews used to live in the city. They moved out to the suburbs. And along with that, you get things like higher uh, property values. You get school segregation. And I don't think there's been a full reckoning or accounting of that. So you have Jews, basically, not all Jews, uh, but a lot of Jews who are white, participate in actively in certain forms of structural racism, so particularly around things like schools and housing. But at the same time, Jews are also victims of white supremacy, right? So, you know, when I, when I think about my experiences in Los Osos, California, I think of that as uh, white supremacy, right? As, as certain forms of white supremacy or Christian hegemony. And I think this is why people have a hard time writing about it, is because, like, you know, we really like simple narratives, right? We like a narrative that there are good guys and there's bad guys. There's victims and as perpetrators. And, and the problem with anti-Semitism and Jewish identity in America is that it's very fraught and, and caught between these twin impulses. Just talking about like the need for nuance, what occurs to me is like mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, is, is derived from intersectional feminism is intersectionality mm-hmm. as a lens to view the reality of simultaneous ways in which you are privileged by structures of power right. and, and oppressed. And it seems to me that like for white Jews, there's this constant rush toward a narrative of perpetual victimhood. 
And yeah. that seems yeah. to and that seems to be really tied in with these understandings of anti-Semitism that are coming from the right. And and I'm just curious, like I, I know there are a lot of people on the left right now, sort of doing the intellectual work of formulating a narrative to contest the one that's been widely put mm-hmm. out there over the last 30 years. What do you think the people doing that work need to be considering from the realities of anti-Semitism as it exists in rural areas? Mm, that's, a, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, and I, I think in some ways this is why I wrote the piece. I, I feel like because right-wing Jewish victimhood is so essentialist and reductive about history and posits Jews as sort of these eternal victims when not looking at, say, for instance, the fact that you know Israel is engaging in the longest ongoing military occupation of another people, I think it's always crucial for any group to understand that you're not just helping somebody liberate themselves, you're also liberating yourself, um, whether that's from anti-Semitism or from capitalism or sexism or anti-queer violence or whatever. Uh, having a sense of one's own skin in the game, I think, is going to be crucial. And I, and I feel like it's a, a, a crucial component of any kind of analysis of anti-Semitism going forward. Uh, well, Benjamin, we're out of time, so we, we got to wrap oh, it okay. up, unfortunately. But thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. It was really great to, yeah. to meet you over the phone. Yeah, likewise. Brennan Zolm at Columbus's Medina. It's time for Shkreach. Uh, so Sam, what did you say before? To hell with Columbus's land. It's from a early 1900s poem called Die Grüne Cousine, which is uh, the greenhorn cousin. And it refers to the perception of recently arrived Eastern European Jewish immigrants in the United States, primarily feeling like this false notion of greatness that was offered to them on the other side of the ocean but I also like to reappropriate it or reinterpret it as kind of an opposition to settler colonialism in North America. I can get behind that. Yeah. But getting right to the point, Sam, uh, what is your shkoyach for this week? Well, as we talked about prior to recording, I am without a shkoyach this week. Oh, I thought you were going to fight something. <laughs> I, f- I think I'm taking the week off for shkoyachs. Okay, okay. I mean, and, you've um, it. and I know that you have a few in your back pocket, so I figured we'd give you the shkoyachs for this week. Oh, I should just say everything that I've been reading about? Yes, and in the future, I'm entitled to a plus one shkoyach. Okay. I don't even know where to start here. Okay. Uh, so the first one... We, we, we just had Hanukkah recently. I thought this would be in the uh, in, in, in the spirit of the season, so to speak. It uh, goes to a rabbi, Moshe Hecht, based in New York. He's a, a rabbi who's affiliated with the Chabad Lubavitch organization. Mm. And someone who, until recently, was most well-known for being the owner of the largest menorah on Earth. Oh, wow. Was uh, this, like, co-signed by Guinness Book of World Records? So Hex Menorah was not certified by Guinness, but he did have www.largestmenorah.com. Well, that kind of sells it then. Uh, he had the Largest Menorah Facebook group. <laughs> uh, he had a lot going for him. Wait, before we go any further, do you have a, Can you? Do you have any images? Like how large is this Largest Menorah? Um, it's about 30 feet high. Okay. How wide? Oh, I don't know. Okay. And, he, and he's been lighting this for, I think, almost 30 years now. But there is another rabbi in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, By in town, you mean in New York? Exactly. Okay. 
And this is Rabbi Shmuel Butman, who's the director of the Chabad Lubavitch Youth Organization. Okay, so it, this is intra-Chabad fighting. Yes. Okay. Uh, he also erected a Chanukia of a similar size, about 33 and a half feet. So he just got that extra half foot? Apparently, they're the same size, but the shamash on his Chanukia oh, goes a yeah, little bit yeah, higher. Yeah, yeah, That's very funny. And in 2006, he got Guinness to endorse his as the largest. Wow. So there's been a lot of competition. I mean, I'm just curious. Couldn't they just make it bigger? What do you mean? Instead of trying to build a bigger menorah or Chanukiah, they are simply just going to fight with each other about whose is the largest? Well, I don't think they were fighting with each other about whose was the largest. I think they were fighting about branding the largest menorah. Oh, okay, okay. And, and recently, the Chabad Lubavitch rabbinical court weighed in. No way. They said that Hecht has to give up the title of world's largest menorah. Wow. He has to give it to Rabbi Butman, and, and they're currently in the process of rebranding it. Wow. What about the website? It's unclear what's going to happen <laughs> with the website. The rabbinical court said that they can still call it the central menorah of Brooklyn. Wow. That's and, a that's a pretty harsh ruling for our friend Shimon Hecht. Yeah. So apparently him and his son are, are working on, on rebranding it. He was trying to be a good sport and, and, and take it with stride. And so shkoyach to him for uh, for losing the mantle of the largest menorah and uh, and doing it doing it like a mensch. <laughs> On this subject, do you, do you have a menorah, David? Like in my house? Yeah. Well, okay. First off, I, I should have done this. We, it's been about a year since we last had this conversation and mm-hmm. I have not looked this up. But uh, Yeah, the menorah, Chanukia. What, yeah. Like my understanding was the menorah was the thing in the temple and the Chanukia is a thing in your house, but... He has largestmenorah.com, and all these news articles were referring to it as the world's largest menorah. The Chabad Lavavish Rabbinical Court called it menorah. So yeah. now I'm thinking that I was definitely off base here. Yeah. This is another chance for listeners. Weigh in. I mean, you're off school now. You can look this up. I got other things to do. Like what? <laughs> Not a whole lot. But listen, do you have a, do you have a menorah slash Chanukia? No. Okay. How come? I don't know. I just, I don't know. I was thinking of getting one, maybe. <laughs> all right, let's move on. We have two more shkoyachs. Oh, yeah. So my next shkoyach is actually going to persons unknown. I don't really know how to proceed with this until you tell me more. Okay, so in in New York City, they only have one classical music station. That seems a little low. Yeah, it's a WQXR. And they have a a committed listener in someone named Patrick Russell. Mm -hmm. He was listening one day, and instead of hearing his usual classical music... So like you're saying, he was sitting in his living room, he had gotten down to his favorite chair... Really excited to hear the latest rendition of Bach. He says, there comes this guy giving a lecture in English about the Torah. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, there's a pirate radio station in New York City that's taking over 105.9 and are just lecturing ad nauseum about the Torah and about Judaism. That kind of makes sense if that's what their focal point is for their radio show. So this guy made a complaint. Uh, He said that it's... (laughs) constantly all the time except for Shabbos they take Shabbos off of course um and and all of New York City is hearing it do you think that we could get this pirate radio station to play Trafe a hundred percent no <laughs> apparently it's an orthodox program hmm and maybe like this this pirate radio is operating like two blocks away from our friend uh, well, we won't know because apparently New York Public Radio's chief technology officer said this happens quite a bit and that you can file a complaint, but it'll take a really long time for them to do anything. Wow, this is a whole underground scene that would be great to follow up on. Um, but my shkoyach goes to the ingenuity 
of these mysterious Orthodox Jews that are uh, taking direct action. They're not <laughs> they're not applying to the FCC for uh, a radio station, and they're getting straight in the airwaves. Yeah, it really warms the anarchist heart. Yeah, so uh, shkoyach. Props to them for uh, yeah, it's, uh, like like sticking what, uh, it to the men. Like what Daniel Bjarne was saying, they're you know not all Orthodox Jews are right wing. Maybe these are some uh, some leftist ones. <laughs> Well, these are two very positive shkoyachs, Moshe Chekt and uh, the unknown people behind the pirate radio in New York City. Actually, David, I don't know if I can finish this segment without giving a quick, quick, quick shkoyach. I thought you said you didn't have any. I know, I don't have one, but I just want to tell people to go read something. Okay, what is it? So I talked about it on Facebook and it came up in our interview with uh, Benjamin today. But I really want to urge people to read James Baldwin's article from 1967, I believe. The New York Times piece called Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. Not only is it brilliantly written, but so many of the ideas ring so true today. I just think in these conversations about whiteness and anti-Semitism, analysis like this is hard to come by. And I just urge people listening to check it out. So a very full and extended segment for today. <laughs> uh, but that's what happens uh, when you don't come prepared, Sam. <laughs> All right, it's that time of year again, David. What's the time of year? Time of the episode, I mean. Um, what? Where we talk about things on the web, where we ask people to do things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What should people do today, Sam? All right, well, first and foremost, it feels like I've said this 1,000 times, but go to iTunes.com and give us a positive review. Oh, that'd be great. Many stars, write a nice note, or write a mean note and give us good stars. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, no pressure, though. No, just asking gently. I'm the good cop. <laughs> Speaking of which, we also highly encourage people to send us voice memos, uh, reflections on the day, reflections on events, general ideas that come into your head. Yeah, we, we love to include as much as we can from listeners of the show onto the show. So any input you have, critical or positive, any, any experiences you'd like to share, we'd love to feature it. Just make sure to say your name and we're calling from at the top. Couldn't have said it better myself. And as always, this is just the beginning of these kind of conversations. We want to keep having it. If you have any thoughts, critiques, or comments on this episode, please get in touch. Trafepodcast at gmail.com and pretty much most other forms of social media. Yeah, please send us uh, any any and all hate mail. <laughs> but beyond hate mail, like legitimate engagements with the subject matter, because I think, I think it's something that people too often shy away from, but is a really important conversation to have. Oh yeah, it would be great if people sent us real emails. <laughs> Lastly, we have a poster. Uh, we have a PDF version if anyone wants a copy, if anyone wants to put it up in their uh, local federation building or synagogue. Get in touch. Yeah, and that's it for today, but we'll be back in two weeks. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganegahaga territory. Uh, thanks to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design, to Kira Page, our social media consultant, to Cadence O'Neill, who designed our new website, tradepodcast.com, to C. Lavery, who designed our new poster, and to Sex Syndrome and So Called for the music you heard in the episode as well as the recently anointed staff rabbi of Traif, Ariana Katz. Go listen to her podcast. It's called Kaddish. It's fantastic. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Traif Podcast or send us an email at TraifPodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon.
Really enjoyed your uh, podcast, um, oh, so I didn't know about it until you called me. Um, so, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's the way we get the word out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one, exactly. one interview at a time. So,